Could I remind you what our missions pastor invited us to do last week, and it will take place tonight after the service at 7.30 in room 132. It's right over there. You are invited to join together. He'll be back uh, then, uh, Roy Gale, uh, to help us to know how we can better uh, lend our support and encouragement to folks like the Sosas. Uh, there's more even than monetary support. They're out there in the field, and we want to figure out ways to stay in closer touch. So if you are a family member of someone preparing for missions work and ministry of different kinds or actively engaged right now, please come 7.30 in the room right over there, room 132. Or if you're just somebody who says, I so appreciate those who are going in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm not exactly able to go, but I want to be part of their support team. I want to pray for them. I want to remember their birthdays, things like that. Then we invite you to join with us as well, 7.30, room 132, later tonight. And Roy Gell, our missions pastor, as I say, will give us some practical ways in which we can be even more supportive of wonderful people like the Sosas. So that's later, 7.30. Well, folks, uh, we believe certain things around here as Christians and their foundational beliefs. They're the foundations of our faith. Uh, that's how we named the series, and these rocks are symbolic foundation stones of all that we believe in. Uh, we spoke about our core beliefs a long time ago about the Bible, and then we spoke about our core beliefs about Almighty God, his characteristics and attributes, and we began to speak some weeks ago uh, about the Lord Jesus Christ. What is he like? And we spoke about his humanity and divinity and his atonement, and, and then I began to speak to you about his resurrection, and, and I made the very simple statement, he is alive, uh, to which some people say, can't be. And in fairness to those who have alternative perspectives on the resurrection, I presented to you as objectively, as objectively as I could last week the most popular alternative explanations. Those who say the resurrection cannot be, well, I suppose they feel they have a reason for saying so, and I presented the variety of explanations last week. And now this week, I want to make the statement again, he is alive, but this week I want to tell you for sure he is alive. And so I want to present to you not theories and explanations to the contrary, but positive evidence for this rather dramatic declaration that this Jesus of Nazareth is indeed alive. Uh, he is Jesus of Nazareth, not born there. He was born in Bethlehem, Beit Lechem, house of bread. And then moved up a little further north where he was raised, a place called Nazareth. It, it was a place of insignificance in its day, probably no more than 130 people, rural and insignificant to say the least. And so this growing Jesus came from a very humble background. But at a certain point in his life, he initiated a very public teaching and healing ministry. It brought him lots of attention. He became immediately quite popular because of the things he said and then backed up by the things he did. But after about three years of this public 
teaching and healing ministry, uh, he fell out of sorts with the established religious leadership of the day. They had had enough with his claims. They simply were too radical for the religious establishment of the day. So offended, in fact, and threatened were they that they executed him, you know this, as a common criminal. Well, this was really bad news for those who were, up until then, his devoted and faithful followers. Now they became, as you can imagine, discouraged and hopeless and quite fearful. You see, their leader was dead, and so too, they thought, was their movement dead. But much to their, much to our surprise, oh no, their movement, his movement, was not dead at all. In fact, those same weak and discouraged and rather fearful followers of this Jesus... Uh, began what became uh, the most remarkable spiritual movement in human history. And I ask you this question, how can it be explained? Surely that something happened is true. Something happened in the first century, something marvelous and astounding, something quite dramatic. How do you explain it? I shared with you the attempts to explain it away last week. I doubt any of you were persuaded that they hold much water. In fact, I don't believe they accommodate the evidence well at all. But there is an explanation for what happened in the first century that better accounts for the evidence of the day, and it is simply this. Jesus rose from the dead just as he said. Now, folks, I want to present to you tonight evidence for the resurrection and tell you that that conclusion, Jesus is alive, by far best accounts for all the evidence leading to it. And to determine whether or not the resurrection is true or false, well, we investigate it the same way we investigate anything else. We weigh the evidence. In fact, this method is called inference to the best explanation. And all we're going to do tonight is begin with the evidence available to us. There's plenty of it. And then what we're going to do is infer from the evidence what we think is normal, logical, reasonable people, what we think provides the best explanation for the evidence. And so I want to show you uh, right at the beginning, that the resurrection is by far the best explanation for the evidence available to us. So let me begin by first submitting to you exhibit number one. It is the empty tomb. I'm not stating that. It's an indisputable fact. Even those who deny the resurrection do not deny that the tomb was empty. It's in indisputable fact. We're left with the evidence of an empty tomb. And there were witnesses to it who began to declare that it was empty right away. Now, this is interesting. They began to make that declaration that it was empty and that they had seen the resurrected Jesus. They did it in the very same city in which he had just shortly before died. It is called Jerusalem. So they didn't go to some obscure place where the name of Jesus had not yet been named. You see, if you really want to foist a fable or legend upon someone, go someplace where what you're saying cannot be 
uh, 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 dismissed as being false. Go someplace where what you're saying cannot be disproven by the facts. But they declared the empty tomb and the risen Jesus right in Jerusalem where he had just before died. Now, folks, they couldn't have gotten away with that for one day, for one hour, for one minute, if, in fact, the tomb wasn't empty. All that they would have had to do at the time is roll away the stone and open it up in full view of all those doubters and say, look, it is in fact not empty. There are his bones. But that didn't happen. And so nobody then nor now denies that the tomb was empty. In fact, even my predecessors, the Jewish religious establishment of the day, alive at the time of Jesus, admit that the tomb was empty. Let me ask you to consider Matthew chapter 28, uh, verses 11 to 15. Let me read it to you. Now, while they were on their way, behold, some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priests all that had happened. And when they had assembled with the elders and council together, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers and said, you are to say his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this should come to the governor's ears, we will win him over and keep you out of trouble. And they took the money and did as they had been instructed. And this story was widely spread amongst the Jews and is to this day. So the Jewish religious leadership did not deny the empty tomb. They knew it was empty, and so they fabricated a lie in order to account for it. They bribed the Roman guards who were witnesses. They, even the Roman guards, witnesses of the empty tomb, they bribed them to believe in what I suggested to you last week as one of the alternatives to the resurrection, the stolen body theory. So even those who were enemies of the Lord Jesus acknowledged that the tomb was empty. Now, here's another interesting fact. The tomb of Jesus was never venerated as a shrine. Never. That's very, very interesting because in the day, the custom in the first century was to do this very thing. Set up a shrine at the site of a holy man's bones. In fact, at the time of Jesus, there were about 50 such venerated shrines in Jesus' day. And since there was no shrine for Jesus, we're left to conclude there was no shrine for him because there were no bones. He was resurrected. Of course, you know, recently some characters said that they found the bones of Jesus. Isn't it interesting? We don't hear much about them anymore. They sort of disappeared from view. Maybe they got resurrected somewhere. <laughs> Who knows? So the bones of Jesus were not found, and as a result, no shrine, contrary to custom of the day, was erected. Here's something else to consider. The first ones to witness the empty tomb and declare the resurrection of Jesus Christ were of what gender? Do you remember? Yeah, they were women folk. And then they declared to the male uh, disciples of the Lord Jesus, the tomb is empty. He is not there. Women first uh, as witnesses, then they testified to the men. And the men went around telling people the women who first were there at the tomb found it to be empty. The stone was rolled away. There was an encounter with a, well, with an angel. And he said, why are you here? He is not here. He has risen indeed. Women said this. Now, I got to tell you what's significant about that. Women had no credibility in that day. Ah, the good old days. 
They had no credibility. They were not called upon in courts of law to give testimony because it was thought that the testimony of a woman would be, well, not objective, not accurate. You can't trust them, you know. I'm telling you this. So listen, imagine yourself. You're a male follower of this Jesus. You know him to be dead and buried and that ends it. But you want to fabricate this lie that he rose from the dead. I have to tell you, you're not going to get women to start it out. You're going to get men, believable, credible men. That the witnesses were women and that's what the male disciples of the Lord said happened, tells me they did it that way because that's the way it happened. So, folks, there was this empty tomb and it was testified to by the women and then by uh, the men. And so that is exhibit one. How are you going to explain the empty tomb? Here's exhibit two, the post-resurrection appearances. See, here's what generally happens. In fact, I think I could say here's what always happens. When someone dies, that's it. You don't see them again. That's sort of the way it works. You, you become dead, and you don't get undeaded as a, as a, well, I think I could say as a rule. So if Jesus was dead... And then it is claimed he became undeaded. You've got to see some evidences. You know what would be evidence that he got undeaded? If you saw him after he was done dead. And that's what I mean by the post-resurrection appearances. And I'm not making this up. This is in the Bible. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 to 6. Paul speaks to the Corinthians. For I delivered to you, says he, as of first importance, nothing's more important, first importance, what I also received. He didn't make it up, he received it, that Christ died. He was dead for our sins. By the way, that's the good news, that he died isn't good news, that he died for our sins is the good news, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and here we go, post-resurrection appearances, and that he appeared to Cephas, what's another name for Cephas? Yeah, that's Peter, and then to the twelve, after that he appeared to more than five hundred brethren, at how many times? One time, most of whom, they're alive. They remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. A list, a partial list of the post-resurrection appearances of the one who apparently is not dead. And he evidenced the fact that he got undeaded by appearing alive to all of these people. Folks, here's the point. What is the evidence that Jesus died? It's simple. He was buried. As a general rule, we wait for that order to take place. We wait for someone to die before we bury them. It isn't good to do it the other, you know, that's how it sort of works. So the evidence that Jesus died, it's obvious. He was buried. And what is the evidence that Jesus is alive from the dead? The post-resurrection appearances listed here by the Apostle Paul. On one occasion, he says, in fact, that the Lord appeared to 500, most of whom remain until now. Here's the point. When the Lord's followers went about saying, he lives, he lives, 
He's risen from the dead, just as the scriptures said, just as he said. There could have been people then who said, no, he didn't. Because they were alive at the time, most of whom remain until now. Instead, they said, yes, we're not challenging your statement. We hear your declaration of resurrection and we attest to it. We affirm it. We validate it. We're alive now to tell you what these guys are going about saying is true. We saw him alive from the dead. 500 at one time. Can you imagine a courtroom filled with 500 witnesses? Think about it. 500 witnesses in a courtroom. Each is called up to take the stand one at a time to testify to something. And you allow each of them only six minutes to give their testimony, including cross-examination. 500 witnesses, six minutes apiece. Folks, 50 hours of first-hand testimony. I want to know how you explain that away. 50 hours of first-hand testimony. Yes, I saw him alive. Yes, me too. Yes, all of us saw him alive after he was buried and considered to be dead. And folks, we have here not only quantity of witnesses, we have quality witnesses. And one is mentioned in verse 7 of 1 Corinthians 15. Then he appeared to James. Now, folks, the New Testament mentions a whole lot of Jameses. But this particular James is the Lord's brother. This is the James who became head leader of the Jerusalem church. This is the James who wrote a book named James. This is the one, the epistle of James, was written by this particular one. And so I ask you, how could it be that this one, who, this brother of the Lord, who at one time didn't believe the claims of Jesus, how could he be now no longer one who disbelieved but who was a devoted follower? And there was a time when he didn't believe. Would you please consider with me John chapter 7, verse 5? For not even his brothers were believing in him. How could you account for the change in James' perspective, such a radical change from disbelief to devotion to the Lord Jesus? You see, James knew Jesus died. James thought that was it. But then James saw Jesus alive from death. And seeing Jesus alive from death persuaded James his hitherto unbelieving brother that Jesus in fact was not dead and that that meant he was in fact who he claimed to be the Messiah, the Savior of the world. In fact, the New Testament, I did a little study on this, I think gives us at least 10 different accounts of post-resurrection appearances of the Lord. That means he appeared after he died. And so let me go through this list uh, for you real quickly. He appeared to, first, Mary Magdalene at the tomb. Then other women as they returned from the tomb. He appeared to Peter on the day of the resurrection. He appeared to two disciples on the way to Emmaus. 
And then ten disciples and others who were with them at Jerusalem. He appeared to disciples again at Jerusalem. He appeared to disciples fishing at the Sea of Galilee. He appeared to 500 people we just read about it in Galilee. He appeared to James. He appeared to apostles before he ascended from the Mount of Olives. I stood on the very Mount of Olives. So many of you have as well. From which the Lord physically, bodily ascended into heaven only this time with nail-scarred hands. That's how we sent him back to the Father, by the way. Folks, that's a lot of post-resurrection appearances. But I realize, just because his followers, the disciples, thought they saw Jesus alive from the dead, doesn't mean they really did. Uh, There are some other possibilities. Let's be fair and advance them. Here's one. They lied. People are prone to do it. They just lied. Does that work for you, though? Do you lie under threat of death? If it's a lie and they knew it, doesn't that, doesn't there come a point of time, you know, people are saying, I'm going to crucify you too, upside down. Do you die for a lie? All 12 of you? And knowing about human nature, you being a human, do you think they could have kept this thing Um, amongst themselves and consistently sustained the lie without one person spilling the beans and saying, we made it up, we made it up. But that's what the Watergate folks did. They didn't keep that thing secret for too long. They didn't have their stories together. Do you believe that? You have more faith than I do if you believe it's a lie. How about this? They didn't lie. They didn't deceive anyone, but they were deceived. They didn't lie. They hallucinated. That's the ticket. They thought they saw Jesus, but they really didn't. But if that's the case, how do you explain the physical nature of the post-resurrection appearances? On one occasion, they ate with him. On another occasion, they drank with him. They touched him. They walked with him. You know, folks, hallucinations don't eat and drink. How do you explain it? Not only that, do you think it's likely that they all... All 500 at one time had the same hallucination? It sort of doesn't happen that way. Hallucinations are a private reality. You hear something, you see something that frankly nobody else is. And we get you help. (laughs) So hallucinations are not public, they're private. So we have three possible explanations of what the disciples said they saw. One is they lied. Two, another alternative is no, they didn't lie, they hallucinated. The third is that they saw Jesus alive after he died. When you consider all of the evidence, don't you see? This one makes the most sense. They saw him alive after he died. That's exhibit two. So let's move on to exhibit three, the transformed disciples. Again, you know something about human nature, so do I. How do you explain the remarkable transformation in the lives of those who followed this Jesus of Nazareth? They were transformed from depressed disciples now to courageous conquerors for Christ. How do you explain it? How can you account for the change in the lifestyle of people like James, who we already spoke about? How about Paul, a one-time persecutor of members of the way? You remember him, famous rabbi. How do you account for the change in Peter's life? He's walking around following the Lord when it was easy, and then all of a sudden, 
You were one of those following him, weren't you, Peter? No, no, no. I don't know him. Never saw him in my life. Remember when he denied the Lord? How do you account for the change in Peter? How do you account for it? When I consider that evidence, I say, he must have been a witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. What was in it for them otherwise? Could you please tell me? Was there financial reward in it? No. They lost everything for claiming their devotion to a risen Savior. They lost everything. You know what their reward was? Persecution, crucifixion, stoning. They were beaten. That's what they got out of it, don't you see? They were tortured. They were thrown to lions. And every conceivable method known to humankind was used to get them to stop going about telling people this lie about a risen Savior. And in spite of all of man's best efforts, they couldn't keep their mouths shut. They kept talking. They said, he's alive. He's alive. I know he is. I saw him. By the way, he lives in my heart today, and he can live in yours as well. Why do people still go about saying that? Unless it's true. I have to tell you, the resurrection explains the behavior of the Lord's disciples. They explain our behavior even today. And then this final bit of evidence, let's call it Exhibit 4. The movement from Sabbath to Lord's Day. Now this one strikes a little close, closer to home for me. I remember as a little Jewish kid, Shabbat or Sabbath observance was used huge. It was central to our faith group as Jews. It, it separated us from uh, the outsiders. There was the us and there was the yous, the Jews and the yous. And we were distinguished by at our adherence to the Sabbath. You go to church on Sunday. Good for you. We go to synagogue on Saturday because we are Jews. And we are living in keeping with the fourth commandment given by God through Moses on Mount Sinai. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. And we think it is so special our rabbis have surrounded the day with a myriad of rules and regulations lest we step over the line and violate the holiness of the Sabbath. I remember one day we were sitting around in New York. My family was together. It was on the Sabbath. And I remember chewing my fingernails. And one of my cousins who was a rabbi in front of everyone rebuked me. Stop it, Stuart Shepsel, he called me. That was my Hebrew name. Don't try saying that. Shepsel, yeah. Uh, don't do that. It's a form of cutting on the Sabbath, which is a form of work. And on the Sabbath, you're not supposed to do any work. So I had to wait for Sunday to bite my fingernails. I remember on the day of my bar mitzvah, 13 years old, we were walking to synagogue. It was a mile and a half away from our home. It was a hailstorm in New York. I walked with my grandmother, who was about 80 years old. We walked arm in arm, being pelted by hailstones because on the Sabbath, we're not allowed to ride in a car. You have no idea how seriously... We take the Sabbath. You cannot write on that day. You cannot have any monetary transactions. In fact, in Israel on the Sabbath, the rabbis ruled that you can't even, can't even respond to a fire. They had to be overruled by a higher-ranking rabbi. If you go to Israel today or any Orthodox Jewish community and you're in an elevator, you have to ride the Shabbat 
elevator on the Sabbath, meaning you don't push the button, thus engaging the electricity to get you to the upper floor because that's a form of work. And so it's automated. it stops on every floor. So if you're in Israel in a hotel on the Sabbath, be patient. <laughs> Bring a book. I mean, it goes on and on and on. On the Sabbath, if you have a toothache, you can't go to the dentist. But if your mother prepares something, has a little vinegar in it, makes your tooth feel a little better, that's cool. If you're in a synagogue on the Sabbath and there's an earthquake and the building falls down, the rabbis have issued a special exception to the rule. You're not allowed ordinarily to carry on the Sabbath, but if the synagogue, if it falls in, the bricks are on top of people, you can lift up the bricks to save a human life. I'm so glad the rabbis permitted that. I mean, you have no idea what uh, hoops we jumped through to remember the Sabbath day so as to keep it holy. So I ask you, what in the world would it take to get Jews to move their corporate worship day from Saturday to Sunday? Do you have any idea what it would take? Folks, I have to tell you, it would take something Really, something like that which is mentioned in Matthew chapter 28, verses 1 to 7. See, see if you can follow this with me. Now, after the Sabbath, what day is that? Yeah, that's Saturday. After the Sabbath, you see, even these first century Christians, Jews, they weren't Christians yet, these Jews, they had to wait to go to the tomb until after the Sabbath. They're not allowed to do this on the Sabbath. So after the Sabbath, as it began to dawn, dawn towards the first day of the week, so if the Sabbath is Saturday, what's the first day of the week? Sunday. So it was on Sunday we're reading about now. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to look at the grave. And behold, the severe earthquake occurred. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone and sat upon it. And his appearance was like lightning and his garment as white as snow. And the guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. And the angel answered and said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who has been crucified. He is not here. He has risen just as he said. Come, see the place where he was lying, and go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead, and behold, he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. Folks, what would it take for a Jewish person to switch his or her worship day from Saturday to Sunday? What would it take for a Jew to stop worshiping in the synagogue on Saturday and suddenly start worshiping in the church with Gentile people? who have cooties, <laughs> who are not kosher? What in the world would it take? I'll tell you what it would take. It would take an act of God. It would take something, oh, like the resurrection of Messiah Jesus. It would take something like that. They would have to see dramatic Evidence of the resurrection on Sunday in order for them to call it the Lord's Day and congregate even with people who they were hitherto at odds with, Gentiles, and look up and worship together as one, as witnesses of the risen Savior. Folks, how do you explain all of these exhibits but by the resurrection? I have to tell you, 
earlier, we spoke of the evidence of the empty tomb, but I, I don't want you to be deceived. Um, it wasn't entirely empty. Oh, the body of Jesus was no longer there. But his grave clothes were still there. This in keeping with ancient Jewish burial custom. Here is the body. It would be wrapped with many, many strips of linen cloth. They would be carefully wrapped around the body. And then just as carefully, dry spices would be inserted into the folds of the linen. That could account for about 100 pounds of additional weight on the deceased body. The body would be laid in a tomb carved out of the rock, both in Judea and in Galilee. And if you go to Israel, you can see some marvelous examples of these 2,000-year-old tombs still in existence today, carved out of the rock. The body would not be placed in a coffin. No, the body would be laid on stone face up. And then a separate cloth would be wrapped around the face and the head of the body would be wrapped around almost like a turban. Now, if you went to the tomb on this Easter Resurrection Sunday and you were looking for resuscitation, as some claim, he swooned, you know, he fainted, he woke up, he, he, resurrect, he, he, he didn't rise from the dead, he was resuscitated. You would expect to see the grave clothes in disarray, not orderly placed. You see, he'd been encased in all of these linen wrappings and a hundred pounds of dry spices. So if he woke up after three days, a little crazy to think that, but if he did... He would have to free himself from all this, and so he would be struggling to loose himself from all this stuff uh, in which he was bound, and you would see things scattered all over the place. But when the first witnesses went there, they didn't see that. You know what they saw? They saw the weight of the spices simply pressing down on the garments which once were occupied by a body, but which no longer are, just as the body passed right through it without disturbing it at all. And not only that, what about the face cloth? See, the face cloth did not contain spices, so it didn't fall under the weight of the spices. They saw it removed from the body uh, according to the space of the deceased's neck and shoulders. And there it was, in place, just in the form in which it was wrapped around him to begin with. Folks, they did not see evidence at all of resuscitation, but they saw evidence, I tell you this, of resurrection. And so I want to know, what are you going to do with the evidence? I'll tell you what they did. He's alive. He's alive. He's alive, and I'm going to tell the world about it. That's what they did, even at risk of their own death. So I want to ask you, in our day today, what are you going to do with the evidence? It's quite compelling. What conclusion have you come to? There's the evidence of the empty tomb, and there's the evidence of the post-resurrection appearances. There's the evidence of the transformed lives of the disciples. There's the evidence of the transition from Sabbath day to Lord's day. And folks, there's much, much more. I ask you, how do you explain it all? I have to tell you, there is no explanation that can better accommodate for the cumulative case 
for the cumulative body of evidence than that Jesus is alive and not can't be. Oh, no. Jesus is alive for sure. I have to tell you something. I and you, we, we serve a living Savior. And as a result, he's in the world today. I, you, we know that he is living because of the evidence in spite of what men may say. Would you sing that with me? I serve a living Savior. He's in the world. Let's sing. I serve a living Savior. He's in the world today. I know that he is living. Whatever men may say. Do you know the rest? I see of mercy so clear and just because he's alive he's all you see he lives he lives salvation oops he walks and he talks along life's narrow way he lives he lives to do what? If you ask me how, there's evidence. You are exhibit five. I am exhibit five. He lives within our heart. Next week, Lord willing, we'll talk about the ramifications of the resurrection, then close the topic. We'll answer the question, okay, he rose, so what? Could I just give you a little hint? Here's a so what. Because he lives, we can talk to him. <laughs> Let's do so now. Lord Jesus, thank you for listening. Thank you for letting us approach you so confidently and so boldly. Thank you for... Uh, winning victory over the last enemy death. Thank you for removing its sting. Thank you, Lord Jesus, because you rose as first fruits. Those of us who are connected uh, by faith to you will also rise from death. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for all that you have done. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for the resurrection. Uh, we're not discouraged and hopeless and fearful at all. Oh, no, filled with hope. And Lord Jesus, because you live, we long to see you in due season face to face. Until then, Lord Jesus, help us to be bold and to go here, there, and everywhere telling people about you, our risen Savior. This we pray in your mighty name. Amen.